Baruch Adonai Elohei Yisrael. Blessed is the Lord, the God of Yisrael, for he has taken note of his people and sent them redemption, causing the horn of salvation to flourish for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke through his holy prophets who were from long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, showing devotion to our fathers and remembering his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to allow us to serve him without fear, with honesty and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. Your deeds are great and fearsome, O Lord, God of legions. Your ways are righteous and true, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and give honor to your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations will come and bow before you. For your righteous judgments have been revealed. Baruch Atah Adonai Ga'al Yisrael, blessed are you, O Lord, who has redeemed Yisrael. Well, tonight we're going to talk about the four devotions from Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47. As you know, this happened immediately after Shavuot, apropos and fitting based on the timing of our own lives. We are uh, right after that time now. So we're looking back some 2,000 years. So the four devotions. We'll be looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47 in what would be called Maaseh Hashlichim. Maaseh? The Acts, right? Or the work of the apostles, right? His messengers, his sent ones. So Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. We begin, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Kepha has already stood up and been preaching for a little bit. And said to Kepha and the rest of the Shlichim, brethren, what shall we do? Kepha said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Ruach HaKodesh. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as Hashem Eloheinu, Adonai our God, will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So, uh, before we get into class, I would uh, I'd bring to your attention the reference to brethren in this uh, first part of this passage. What does that indicate? These are Jews. Brethren, brothers, he is being addressed by fellow Jews. Which means that the vast majority, if not all, of the people to whom he's speaking are Jews. How do we know this from the context? How do we know this from the context? Acts chapter 2, how do we know this from the context? Maybe you didn't hear the question. How do we know this from the context? It's Shavuot! Jews who 
met certain criteria be there. So the ones who are there are the devout Jews. These are the the ones who are keeping the Torah. These are the ones who are obedient to God's command and showed up, right? And they're the ones that have listened to him and they're like, oh, well, what should we do? We're not excluding that there was still a fair amount of Gentiles. I believe there was very few Gentiles. But I believe that clearly this passage and then turning back to these 3,000, I would say, ties together. You've got 3,000 Jews. Exactly. So he's preaching, as it were, to the, to the choir. Right? It's not to discount the fact that there are Gentiles there. There's probably not a lot of Gentiles there. Right? Repent and be baptized. Is it possible for you to repent if you don't know the Word of God? It's just a question. Is it possible to repent if you don't know the Word of God? So, it's difficult to repent. You really need to be told what you're doing is wrong, and this is the right way, so do the right way. But if the command is simply to repent, it implies that you know from what you need to repent and to what you need to turn or to whom you need to turn, right? I mean, I'm just trying to unpack some of this. Mm. And they're, they're juxtaposed hand in hand. So it's not just um, acknowledging what you've done wrong, but it is confessing it to the only one who can forgive sins. You have to acknowledge him as much as your faults. And you have to repent. I mean, you got you to change course. Greg, comment? Well, I agree with all, all of that, but. Um, is, is that to say then, if you are a Gentile pagan who is unfamiliar with the details of Scripture, yes, that you are unable to repent if you if if God moves on your heart and convicts you of sin. Yes, I would say yes. I would say that you can be convicted of the sin. You could know that what you're doing is wrong and know that you should stop doing what you're doing. Which I think is where you're going. But the, but the next step, okay, stop doing that and start doing this. I think that this part is going to be vacuous. And there needs to be somebody to tell you or there needs to be scriptures there to teach you what it is you should be doing. Because it's not enough to stop doing. We need to replace that action with a better action or with a more appropriate action. Would you agree? Yeah. All right. Uh, Repent and each of you be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. So did the baptism forgive the sins? I'm just asking. Okay, well, you said no, but he's sitting here going, well, I'm not really sure. I'm not going to say anything. He's over here going, what, are you nuts? What? I was actually going to go back to repent. Oh, go ahead. You're going to have to move faster, though. All right. Repent. What does repent really mean? To turn around. 
Uh, and I would probably add one more component to that, which is the picture shu, which is what it's rooted. And return. Shin, vav, bet. And if we take the ancient writing, it's a shin is a picture of like teeth. Mm-hmm. And vav, we know what a vav is, and we know that bet is a house. No, and vav, just by face, is like a peg. Right, it's a peg. Yeah, right? we'll hook. So the idea is that the house that you're turning away from be utterly destroyed. However, in us, we don't have the power to destroy sin, evil, death. So only him who has a, who's the new man, if you will, the vav, who was pierced with that vav, is the only one who can make utter destruction to that which you're repenting from. Mm-hmm. In which, obviously, then we need, you know, this, the whole point of this is that the ruach, the spirit, is the only one who can give revelation of that sin of the one who can forgive and of the new way we should walk in. We as humans are completely incapable to truly repent without the Ruach getting our attention. Which is the same picture of Shuv if you look at the other, with the Sheen being the spirit and right and returning to the appropriate house. Absolutely. So, absolutely. So, my point in this is, if he's talking to Jews... Well, it makes perfect sense to tell them, succinctly, you need to repent. Because you know the right way. You know you're going the wrong way. You need to turn, and you need to go back. In verse 5, I understand, since you're saying he referred to the Jews, then who were the people reading about in verse 5 and verse 10? You're going to have to give me verse 5 and verse 10. I don't have it in front of me. says... in Yerushalayim was uh, uh, Jews and devout people from every nation. Mm-hmm. So, do you think it's the devout... Definitely Gentiles. Okay. But, okay, and then it's listed from all the nations? Gentiles. Gentiles, okay. But how do you... Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying there are no Gentiles there. No, 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 I'm asking how do you conclude what all of these 3,000 was a Jew? I'm, I'm saying that based on this particular paragraph... Most of them were probably Jews. And in fact, devout men from every nation can still mean that they were in fact Jews that came from the nations in obedience to the command. So, I don't want to get get lost in the details, because it doesn't really matter. Um, We see that there's Gentiles added to the church later. I mean, Acts chapter 7, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 5 is big, that we've got other Gentiles and Hellenized Jews there as well. But I think we should see in the scriptures a clear understanding that the Jews were called first and reacted first because the message was so clear. Not that there were no Gentiles, but just very few. And there, there probably is a bunch of Gentiles. But your point is that they know what to repent to. Correct. They're devout people from every nation. That's sort of the same thing. Yes, Jews coming from the nation. And That's right. That's right. They are devout. They are devout. These 3,000 are to parallel the perishing 3,000 uh, in Mount Sinai. Could be. Who, who repented, who did not repent. Good point. Yeah. But I think the text, when, by the time we get to verse 37, I mean, I think John already pointed out earlier, I mean, if you back up a few verses, uh, clearly says men of Israel. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's talking so to. That's not to say there weren't some Jews right. standing around. Right. Right. But he's he's addressing Jews. Brethren. Yeah, that's that's my point. He's addressing Jews. Jews are responding. It's not to say there's no Gentiles there, but his audience is clearly to Jews who know how to repent. And as Peter just pointed out, could be Gentiles who are devout men, and they also know how to repent because they know the Scriptures. Could be, quote-unquote, the God-fearers we read about later on. Yes, sir? I don't know if this is too much of a rabbit trail, but when we see the, uh, the phrase, in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, um, does that... What exactly does that entail? Because I've seen, you know, Christians who absolutely have to say in, in Jesus' name at the end of every prayer as if it won't work if you don't say that. Yeah. Or and I've also seen in in Ramban's letter for the ages that at the very end there's footnotes that, that actually suggest that oh you should you know ask for this prayer in the merit of Ramban. Sure. You know because yeah. of his righteousness right. and things like that. So can we? Is there any insights anybody could share on yeah. that phrase? You're exactly right. It is a rabbit trail, okay. and we'll have another class to do that. <laughs> yeah, but it's good that you knew that. That's good. Yeah. All right. So, but but make a note because we'll have a class on it. We'll talk about it. Okay. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, whether it's in the name of Yeshua Mashiach or not. Does the baptism save them? But you were pretty quick on that. You sure? You know that. He knows that. Do you know that? You know that too. These guys know that. Do you know that? So I don't need. We don't need to talk about that. Do you know that? I think I know that. So I should pass. Well, going to your rabbit trail, which may not really be a rabbit trail because that is the text. <laughs> uh, the baptized part isn't what saves, but it's the name who saves. It's the person who saves. And the bearer of the name Yeshua, who can not only save, but also forgive our sins. Because nobody else can forgive sins. Which he made clear time and time and time again, that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins. But I think, you know, I think the word baptism, if we take that back to where it is in the Hebrew, right, this is not an unusual thing, right? I mean, Excellent. Saying, you need a mikvah, right? Which is something these people are doing on a regular basis for a long list of reasons. Almost daily, if and they the, live there. And the point of a mikvah is to recognize a change in status, right? And most of the time it has to do with change in status with respect to ritual purity. So, you know... So it's that, it's that, um, uh, it's that action that that says, "All right, I'm going into the waters, right?" And there's all kinds of imagery there, right? Going, go into the water. Romans six, right? You can't live underwater. You come out of the water, you're a new being, as it were. You know, all of those, all of that imagery and symbolism that we hopefully, you know, are already familiar with, but. It's not like it's not like that was like a new concept here, right? Exactly right. Well, and you know, you may uh, tell me what you think. <laughs> what is new about the baptism that's being mentioned here is that prior to this time, um, in order to enter the Mishkan or the physical temple, 
when you went into the mikvah, it wasn't necessarily a baptizing in the name of Yeshua. Obviously, he is the ultimate expression of everything. He is God in flesh. And But what you do see is that just like with the shedding of blood of animals, you're able to enter into the Mishkan, well, certain areas depending on who you are, <laughs> and, in the te- and in the temple as well. However, to enter into the heavenly temple, or the blueprint of what's above, and in the new or renewed Yerushalayim, and in his presence in Olam Haba, it can't be through just the shedding of blood as people have always known it. Same thing, the entering into the Mishkan and the temple in Olam Haba isn't going to be just mikvah as we know it. It's going to be mikvah in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, who's the only one who can forgive sins. Because apart from forgiveness of sin, we can't stand in His presence. So the mikvah is that temporary cleansing with water. However, being baptized in the name of Yeshua is a not just physical submersion, but it's the entire being submersion, which now enables you to stand in the Olam Haba Mishkan Tabernacle presence of Hashem. Right. I would say it could almost be a figure of speech to a certain extent. I mean, immerse yourself in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach. I think that's that's sort of our anthem, especially as we read the scriptures, trying to immerse ourselves into the Word of God and find those places that are explicitly about Yeshua. I mean, it, it, uh, I think Joshua's correct. There's more than just a physical, verbal, verbatim type of formula that's most common today whenever you see those words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't want to spiritualize it to the point that we lose the physical command. And the physical command is, you need to repent, and you need the forgiveness of your sins. And once you have that, you need to be baptized. Why are you you being baptized? Because your sins have been forgiven by this Holy One. Public declaration. That's that's the thing. There has to be a physical baptism. Has to be. And that... That is a recognition that there's been a dramatic change. We come up a new creature, and in this case, we come up a new creature unknown in the physical sense. In every sense of the word. Exactly right. Good. What is new about this, in addition to the name of Shem is the fact that the result is you receive the gift of the Ruach. Exactly. Which is what this day is all about. Good. All right. So that has nothing to do with tonight's class. That was just warm up. See if you're awake. That's great. Let's go on to the rest of the uh, passage, 42 to 47. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Now, your version may have prayer. It's wrong. Check the Greek. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, 
They were taking their meals together with gladness and with sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. You should be familiar with this passage. If you have uh, experienced the uh, beauty of this past weekend and Shavuot, I would think that you would have taken time to read about the quote-unquote second Shavuot that's been described here. So we're going to be looking at what they're devoting themselves to. These that were added to their number. Is that where you're going next? Yes. The name of this class is the Four Devotions. Okay? Okay? So, let's break it down. I, uh, I want to look at these four devotions. Proskartereo, we're going to look at some Greek, means to be earnest towards, that is to persevere, be constantly diligent to attend assiduously all the exercises or to adhere to closely to four devotions. The first one was the apostles' teaching, that is study. Study. What were the apostles teaching? They were teaching the words of Yeshua. What was it that Yeshua had been teaching and preaching about but the Mashiach throughout the Tanakh? Secondly, the fellowship, that is community, community. Third, the breaking of bread, or that being a euphemism for hospitality, hospitality. And then finally, the prayers, that is liturgy. I've, uh, I've put this together in an acronym of SATCHEL, just so that I can remember it. But isn't it interesting, as you look at these four devotions, these four habits, they are all absolutely the habits of Judaism. Study of the Torah, top shelf. Community, they die without it. Hospitality, breaking bread together, That's what they're all about. Avraham Avinu, Abraham, our father, is famous for that. And finally, liturgical prayer, since the destruction of the temple and the inability to bring sacrifice, this has been replaced with liturgical prayer. So, study, community, hospitality, and liturgy appear to be four hallmarks of Judaism And yet these are the hallmarks of the early believing community in Yeshua. So let's break them down. The apostles' teaching, this is didache, that is instruction or doctrine from the Greek. The new believers are called tamidim. They're disciples. That means they're following somebody. They're closely walking and learning from another. I like this. The apostles were links in the chain of oral transmission of Yeshua's teaching. 
That's extraordinary if you think about it. Because that's exactly what every rabbi is. Back in those days, the rabbi was simply another link in the oral transmission. And he would pass it. Teacher to student. Father to son. And it would get passed down orally generation to generation to generation. That's what was done. And that's what they did. They were involved in deep scriptural study. You know, in Acts chapter 6, it's that little uh, discussion about needing deacons. Because, you know, gosh, guys, we can't uh, give up the opportunity to study the scripture to wait on tables. We've got to be doing the studying. So studying scripture was extraordinarily important. It was priority number one. Psalm 1, we know, teaches us that the man of God is in his Torah day and night, meditating upon it. That's his delight. So the apostles' teaching. Adding to those that were already there. The second one is fellowship. The fellowship. Kononia, a partnership. Literally, participation, social intercourse, or pecuniary, that is financial benefaction. Helping one another. Right? It's not just a group of friends, but it's a Torah community, and those of you who are part of the Bellatora community here, and praying and celebrating the feast and caring for one another, you know what I'm talking about. The common sharing or participation in a common cause that we're trying to grow and walk. I'm, teaching to, I'm preaching to the choir, obviously, right? Um, a common cause that we would be more righteous, that we would be more pleasing to our Father who is in heaven. The Pharisees Organize themselves. Um, Hope of Israel has uh, a Havra group in almost every part of the city. And I've gotten the calls from the uh, leader of the Havra in our area, right? They organized themselves into these Havarim, these fellowships that studied the Word of God. They eat and they pray together. It's a, it's a, it's a, a subunit, if you will, of the greater fellowship or community. The Essenes did the same thing. They lived in these fraternities. They're like, um, they're like monks in some type of monastic order. They've got this holy fraternity living out in the desert back in the days of the Master. So, um, it's, uh, it's a common thing. The day for both the Pharisees and the Essenes were divided into three parts. The first third for the Torah, second third for prayer, and the third, third for work. That was their priority, right? We're going to study, we're going to pray, we're going to work. What do you think of that model? You like that model. Priority seems to be straight. Well, you see, if it's that order, what the priority is. You bet. Your life exemplifies what's most important. I like that order a lot because a lot of times prayer should be repeating God's words back to him. 
confirming his promises. Yes. It's good to start with the word and then pray. Excellent. So you don't want to remember that for the second hour, but I don't want to spoil that now. Yeah, soon and in our days, yeah. Okay, so first we've got uh, the Apostles' teaching study. Second, the fellowship one with another, or Torah. And then... Uh, Breaking of bread. This is interesting. If you look at the Greek, it doesn't say that at all. There's no bread in there. It's klossus, which means to fracture. Literally, breaking. They dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to breaking. Vases, lampshade, you know, no, no, no. Yeah, break dancing, yeah, right? It's breaking, but the breaking of bread is a common idiom, right? It's a common idiom. Paras lechem. Breaking bread. Hospitality and sharing the meal. And, you know, you know we've, we've got some great uh, family examples here. It comes from the opening prayer. We know that opening prayer, right? Where we bless God before we divide that common loaf. That's what we do on Arab Shabbat. You know, Baruch Atah, Adonai, Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam. I want to say, like, I mean, it's ripped. I break the bread off, and I pass one side this way and one side that way. Yeah, it's it's interesting because you know we have people in our room almost every Friday night. You know, whenever we have someone there who's uh, maybe it's their first time to be exposed to the Shabbat or whatever, and we say the Hamotzi, and you know. I tear a piece and I hand them the loaf. It's like, no, no, we break. We're breaking the bread. There's no Good slice for you. where we're going to break. Break the bread. Excellent. Excellent. And it's a biblical thing, right? Classes. Classes. Talmudim always ate their meals with the master. You read about it over and over again, and you've got some special examples where that's done. And he says, by the way, you know, there's this humongous crowd here. You need to, you need to feed these guys. I mean, they're going to get tired. Where are we going to get the bread to feed these guys? Yeah, and we've got some miracles that happen. But it all comes out of the meals. So it's the same thing. The master's not there physically, but they are. They're representing him, and there's just more people. There's just more folks around. That's a very cool deal. We see this in Jude chapter 12, uh, chapter 1, verse 12. Uh, where these meals are referred to as love feasts. As some commentators believe that these, these meals, this, these fellowship meals, were actually a, uh, a replay, if you will, of the Master's last Seder. And they, they kind of played through that each time, just to remember it uh, more frequently than just at Pesach. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by the winds, and so forth. 
So these, uh, uh, you know, I won't go through and, and give these men any more time on our uh, calendar here than they're due. Uh, but these love feasts were so common that folks were showing up and trying to, as it were, crash the party or grab the girls. So we've got the breaking of bread. So to review, we're looking at the four devotions. The first one, the apostles' teaching, right? We're looking at Torah study. The second one, fellowship, koinonia, right? That they were coming together, caring for one another. And then third, the breaking of bread or classes, fracture. And then finally, the prayers, one of my favorite. Again, the definite article is there, prasyuke, earnest prayer, worship, or an oratory. That's what's in the scripture. It's the prayers. There's no way to get around that. It is liturgy. It is the liturgical daily prayers of Judaism. There's no no way of getting around that. Acts chapter 3 and verse 1, Kepha and Yochanan were going up to the temple for the Minka prayer at the ninth hour. That's why they were going there. They're going to do the liturgy. Why? Not only was it their custom, it was a command. Uh, with regards to prayers, uh, definitely the commands of the times to pray, uh, and yet still they leave room that when you're in your homes, in addition, if you didn't go to the temple, which why wouldn't you if you were there? <laughs> right. Um, that there were additional prayers as seen through Scripture. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not to yeah, not to discount those. My point is that the scripture says they were doing the prayers. That's the key. Sure, other prayers, we see them throughout, you bet. Um, especially with shipwrecks and some weird things like that. That's right, yeah. Right? Which is the same word that's used of those same sacrifices for the prayers. They were in concert with other Jews, following the same forms, the conventions, the modes, and the times of prayer. Now, I don't want you to think that they were doing what we're doing. I don't want you to think that they had the art scroll sitter, and they're all facing Jerusalem, and they're doing their deal and davening away. Well, first of all, facing Jerusalem? No, they're facing the Ark of the Covenant. They're facing the Holy of Holies, because they're in Jerusalem, first off. Second, there were no Sidereen. If you remember our timeline, it was in about ooh, 750, 800 in the common era that we've got the Sitter that you have today, almost verbatim, being written down. So there was no Sitter, but they were following the same forms and conventions of Judaism of their day. You should be sensing now, based on what they were doing, that Their faith in Yeshua did not change their mode of worship. They didn't go building synagogues and churches so that they could worship with a different religion. They were practicing a sect of Judaism and they were in the temple of the Jews practicing that faith along with all the other Jews. This actually 
great compliment of Yeshua's charge to pray, you know, in, in your closet and alone and everything. Because if you weren't going to pray during the time that everyone else was praying, then it's just quite obvious, like, oh, look, that guy yeah. must be very righteous. He's, he's praying, and it's not even the time. So it's, it, it pairs very nicely. Yeah. Because you have he, the public prayers. Yeah, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have to tell you about the private prayers unless he knew you were doing the public prayers. Otherwise, all your prayer is private. Let's continue on this thought. There's a mandate, two times, by the way. It's not three times. Ma'ariv, added later. Two times, mandate in Scripture. Exodus 29, 38-42, Leviticus 6, verses 9-13, and Numbers 23, 28, verses 3-8. These are the prescribed and mandated times of worship in the temple. That's at the morning, where they sacrifice a young male goat, and then in the afternoon. Around the, they start at sunrise, and finished by the third hour, which is about 9 a.m. The afternoon, or Minka sacrifice, was at the third hour after midday, which would be the ninth hour. And uh, Shakarit's called the morning one, Minka the afternoon one. We do those today. Some of us do those today. How many of you pray Shakri prayers on a regular basis? How many of you pray Minka prayers on a regular basis? I'm trying to add Minka. You pray something in the afternoon. Something in the afternoon. All right. I am. I am 100 percent praying Minka. Shabbat. Okay. <laughs> Did you notice that in the scriptures there is no teaching at all? Not one. Against the temple or against the Levitical worship system. And yet, that's what we hear in professing Christendom today. But there is none of that. It is not there. In fact, we see the opposite. They're actually practicing. They were likely in the temple when the Spirit was poured out on Shavuot. If you didn't see the brands online, um, weekly schmutz that... um, that Rick Spurlock puts out, rumination that he puts out on uh, uh, Motzi Shabbat, outstanding. And he went through this, you know, they weren't in the upper room when the Spirit came upon them. It just doesn't work. So, anyway, I won't uh, belabor that. The temple was the locus, the center of that apostolic community. They were a temple sect, Right? They were a temple sect. This is actually an important point because just because you're an element of Judaism in the first century did not mean you had to be a temple sect. The Essenes are a very classic and um, well-known example of a group that said, the temple's too corrupt, we're walking off and taking our ball with us. Yes, we just used them as an example of fellowship, but could not use them for this because you're right, they weren't a temple sect. So the, the decision by Yeshua's disciples to the temple was very much a conscious one. It wasn't like, well, everybody else is doing it. I guess we will too. We don't know what else, what, else, what else to do. They had a very clear example of another option if they had wanted to. They also had a clear example of three years with the Master, whose habit it was to be in God's house on a regular basis. You bet. And I think that's why also it's important that part of our description is not just Talmudim, but also Shlichim. Because Talmudim, you can study, you can be... But shlichim means you have to go and be, and be out there, be in with everybody, not just separate yourselves of the scenes, but you're shlichim. You are sent. 
You were a sent one. Absolutely. Good. 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 All right. So that's the four. You've got a satchel now. Take that with you. Have a great time. They were studying, right? So, oh, it's, yeah. Right? So they were studying the Torah. See? I mean, uh, T? Yes. They were together, right? Um, uh, satchel. Yeah. Community, right. They were studying. They had community, and they had hospitality, and they had liturgy. Okay. Whew. All right. There was a sense of awe. Fabas. Fabas is the word uh, for awe, or it's translated as awe in the New American Standard and the uh, English Standard Version. Fabas means alarm or fright, to be afraid, exceeding fear or terror. Yeah. Yeah. Elisha's ministry paralleled the miracles of Elijah immediately after his ascension. As soon as he went up, grabs the mantle, and all kinds of miracles begin to happen. Same thing that we read about in the Talmudim's lives. As soon as the master was taken up, all of these miracles begin. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, and the lame will walk like, leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. This is what happened. And interesting that Phobos is the same uh, idea of Yidat Hashem. Exactly. The awe of God, the fear of God. It's interesting that what you added was the eyes and if you look at the first time God, well, God calls Abraham a God-fearing man, it's linked with the fact that he sees what God sees and obeys that rather than filled with the other fear, which is the human out of touch with Hashem fear. Very cool. Very cool. And just a reminder. Yeah. God performs miracles, not people. The fact that this miracle happened and Peter was involved, or Paul was involved, or John was involved, God did the miracle. He just used these men. Now, that's not to denigrate these men, but it's God that does the miracle, right? They had all things in common, Greg. Koinos, common, that is shared by all or several, ceremonially profane unclean or unholy. Now, why would those definitions, they seem out of place for common or shared by all? What's the, what's the deal? Why is it there? Paraphrase the division of Shabbat from the six days of work for your... Havdalah. At the end of the Shabbat. Um, a very commonly translated word in there is um, whole, which is the word common. It can sometimes be translated as profane. The point that it's trying to make is not that it's evil, but merely... Or bad. Or bad. Or even bad. Yeah, I mean, it could be totally neutral. It's, it's point or even good. Its point is that it is not holy. The Sabbath is set apart, hence it is holy. The common things are the rest of it. Exactly. And this is common, to be shared by all. The stuff that's holy can't be shared by all. They're shared by a specific group. 
normally in the temple? The priest, the Kohanim. Exactly right. And, and the meaning that if it's all common, then none of it is holy, which means set apart. Or as the Pharisees said, would say, here's this, but I'm going to keep part of it because it was all that category. You bet. Or as the, as the Pharisees began to do, which the Master got upset with, all of my stuff is holy. There's nothing common anymore. I've elevated every meal, all my food, to be the same as in the temple. What does that do to the temple? It makes it common. It's exactly right. Uh, two small things. Uh, one of which is that that's an important word when you're also having that food discussion. I think Aaron Eby, a couple of Messiah journals ago, uh, used that and just breaking down you know, where all the you know, unclean, you know, koine, common, you know, and, and breaking that down when explaining, I think, the Mark 7 passage uh, with the unclean foods and Thus, Jesus declared all foods clean and things like that. Uh, so that's uh, pretty important in that respect. And also, there's a lot of people who feel that Greek is a language, um, you know, a holy language, but it's it's called Koine Greek. It's common Greek. There's grocery lists and you know, and you know, little kids' you know, school work done in the same language that we have. That's in true. The biblical text. That's true. This is, in fact, the name of that. Which actually, I think, maybe um, is perhaps the most powerful example of what the word means. Because the thing that made Greek so unique in the first century was that it was essentially spoken by everybody. Um, it was truly common. Common. So it was, it, it was an effort by the Greeks and then the Romans to unify their entire realm um, with the same language, much the same way that business today is mostly conducted in English. Or Spanish. Sorry. A lot, and a lot, but, but upper level business, a lot is conducted in English, and the effort is to try and provide some sort of common ground to work on. Right. Um, so, in that sense, we talk about a community, uh, this word common means you, it really is in common. It's shared. You're, on, you're speaking the same language. You are dealing with the same issues. You're approaching things very similar in the same ways. So, it's the idea that when you're, it's truly shared. It's, it's not like this, um, there's no classes or castes here. It, it was one unified... Universal. Place. Exactly right. Communism. Communism. <laughs> Which, by the way, the communism didn't, didn't work so well. Yeah. Because they kept having to send food to Jerusalem. You have to wonder why they had this communal life. And um, some folks, including myself, believe it was... A, a, ref, a reverence for the temple. Your, your mileage may vary, but I think that they saw such great joy and fellowship and camaraderie and unification by being in the temple that they didn't want to leave. Second coming. Meaning that they perhaps understood that it was coming much sooner. Why go home? 
Right. In which case... Uh, Where better to be? Right. Exactly. And, and in one respect, they were right. Because 40 years later, their world ended. I mean, for all intents and purposes, their world ended you bet. As, they, as they knew it. Yeah, you bet. That's, it could be either way. It's not like fishing tents outside the uh, rock concert same kind of deal yeah yeah it, although that would be coin a this, this, yeah. okay so yeah but no without question the temple was their center of worship and Peter didn't go home Peter didn't go back to Capernaum James and John the sons of Zebedee right they didn't go back to Bethsaida James the half-brother of the master did not go back to Nazareth and Nathaniel did not go back to Cana they stayed there they lived there it's an amazing thing. The Essene community, same kind of thing. They called themselves Hayachad. Yeah, the togetherness, the unity. They were there, and they were together. It's a great uh, example they had. Listen to uh, what Josephus says about the Essene community. Uh, this is out of the Jewish War, chapter 2. As for their devotion to God, they act extraordinarily. Now, as I read this, I want you to think. If somebody writes about your life, would they write this? If they were just to notice how you practice your day, would they write this about you? As for their devotion to God, they act... Yeah. Does everybody know who Josephus is? Go ahead. You want me to do it? You do. Josephus was a historian um, that, that was uh, there at the time and he was he was a Jew uh, he was a Hellenized Jew as I understand it yeah. and, uh, but he wrote uh, he recorded the history of what was going on at that time so his, his uh, yeah, he's got a lot of eyewitness accounts to the events and many of the events recorded in the Apostolic uh, Scriptures um, and so his writings are significant to us from a historical perspective and in helping us understand what's going on Amen. in the thought. The Romans are going to put an end to this Jewish revolt. They're sweeping down from the north through the Galilee, heading to Jerusalem. They stop, have a little battle, and they find some of these freedom fighters hiding in caves. They pull these guys out, and they're getting ready to lop off their heads. And one guy says, Whoa! Wait a second! I can write. I'll write down everything you're doing. It'll be saved for posterity, and people will remember your name. So what's your name? Josephus. He was a leader of the resistance movement, and they actually paid him to... I mean, he saved his own life. Very cool, very clever. Not only a good writer, but a good speaker, evidently. And he did. He, he wrote the truth. And great name, too, by the way, if you think about it. Anyway, um, but he, uh, he, did, uh, he did write down everything and followed along and was deemed a traitor by several Jews. Um, but overall, yes, his, his, uh, his writings are revered not only by Jews now from historicity, but also by uh, believers that, that recognize the contribution. The only caution with Josephus is because he's... Um so old, and the Catholic Church essentially dominated written text in the West for hundreds of years, 
there are elements of Josephus that appear to have been edited. Tweaked. Yeah. Altered. Yeah. So what makes it most important is when he's talking more specifically about Jews. When he starts talking about the early believers, you kind of have to be... Yeah, that's true. ...on what he says. But on things like the Essenes, the Catholic Church had no reason to tweak it much, if any, so it's probably pretty accurate. As for their devotion... As for their devotion to God, they act extraordinarily. Before sunrise, they don't speak of ordinary matters, but they offer up specific prayers. What, is that? what does that mean? Liturgy. Liturgy. Which they have received from their forefathers. Ah, the traditional prayers. And after this, every one of them are sent away by their overseers to work, practicing those vocations in which they are skilled, in which they work diligently until the fifth hour. Then they assemble themselves together again into one place and quietly set themselves down. The baker serves them loaves in order. The cook also brings a single plate of one soft, uh, I can't remember, the soft of food and sets it before every one of them. The head of the table says a blessing before the meal and no one tastes of the food before blessing is said. The same person, after he has eaten, says the grace after the meal at both the beginning and the ending. They thank God. Pretty cool. They, they all died. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. All right. We move on. These believers had a simple mode of life. They had a sincere faith. And they had a contagious enthusiasm. And I don't want to move on from this point on this slide until I ask you. Is that how the people at your office describe you? Do you have, do you have a simple life? Paul writes later on to Timothy. I love you, man. I'll tell you why. You've got a sincere faith. It's without wax. What? The wax in the marketplace, the, the, the pottery was, was put together and held together by wax if it had cracks in it. And it would be brought out into the sunlight and the heat of the sun would melt the wax. The pottery would fall apart. You knew it was, it was just crap. I don't want to buy this. It was without wax. His... His faith was true. It was solid. It was sincere. It comes from the, from the Latin, without wax. Do you have a sincere faith? Do you have a simple life? Do you have a contagious enthusiasm about Yeshua? That people want to know? I mean, do you end up with people saying, okay, tell me, what, what, what do you got? What do you got? Is it pills? Yeah, I, I want some of the pills. Are you happy pills? If that's not you, I, I want to challenge you. What, what are you waiting on? Is there something missing? This is an amazing thing, but these believers in Yeshua were not treated as apostates of Judaism. They had the favor of the people, both the Pharisees, who were not part of the common people, and the common people, the Am Haaretz, right? The people of the land. Those were the non-Pharisees, and then there were the Pharisees. But both groups held them in high regard, to the point where a lot of Pharisees actually came to faith in Yeshua. Going to point one, simple mode of life, seems just looking at those, if that first one isn't defined and lived out, 
then you're gonna have way too many things competing. This is like a like a baggage. Like a baggage thing. Have, yeah, we only have enough X amount of time, energy, strength, and if we don't live a simple mode of life, then we're gonna be pulled in too many directions for our faith to be sincere. I mean, for our enthusiasm to be contagious. And Shaul talks about it in Romans uh, 12, 8 or 9, verse 9, I believe, where it says, let your love be sincere, or without hypocrisy. Cling to what is good, abhor hate what is evil. Well, very very simple life. Amen. Cling to what is good, everything else goes. There it is. And so it keeps it really simple, sincere, and contagious. The, the beauty of it is, they didn't seem to be contentious. The only contention we see is twice, as far as I can tell. First, you got Peter and John teaching in the temple. The guys in charge didn't like that, jacked them up, threw them in jail, and said, don't do this anymore. What was their response? I'm trying to figure out who we should listen to. You or God? We're going with God. Second time? Paul. I'm in jail, but I didn't do anything wrong. I haven't violated any laws. They're just pretty upset. And they're upset with me because of him. Of Yeshua. I mean, you, you got a couple of skirmishes here and there, but what are those skirmishes about? You sure? But they were liked by the people. And we're talking about specifically right after Shavuot. Months afterwards, they're doing well. There was no departure from Judaism. The only difference between other Jews and them were twofold. One, their allegiance to Yeshua and their conviction that he was the Mashiach. That was it, which is really one thing, if you think about it. It is who he is. He is God, and he is the Mashiach. And there's nothing that can change that. That was the Rab. And you know what? There, shortly after that, we're going to be a temple sect that was there that thought another guy was the Mashiach. Temple gets destroyed. They're going to fight back. Bar Kokhba, the whole deal. These guys were a sect of Judaism, and their only difference from everybody else was Yeshua. And yes, they weren't obnoxious. Uh, Yeshua just happens to be the stumbling stone. And and even before Bar Kokhba and all that revolt place. Uh, you even see with Shaul. Nobody was trying to be obnoxious. It was just simply the fact that, what? Yeshua is the Messiah? Yeshua HaMashiach? In which Shaul and more and more growing uh, to persecute those who believed in Yeshua. However, those following Yeshua, their goal wasn't to try to irritate and stir that up. Or fight back. Or separate themselves. But to I mean, yeah, once we're faced with persecution, I think we'll understand 
Allegiance to Yeshua and the drive to work with this contagious enthusiasm caused a real concern in the Sadducean party to the point where Paul, born, raised, and bred a Pharisee, switched parties and worked for the, Pharise- for the Sadducees, got letters from them to go and grab these people up because it was a threat to Judaism to the Judaism they knew, to the Judaism where they were in charge improperly. I said it was their sect of uh, Judaism. They were distinguished by exceeding zeal for the Torah. They devoted participation in the temple services. They're witnessing that Yeshua of Nazareth, Nazareth was the Messiah. That's how they were distinguished. I would love it if that were a description of me. I what you were talking about Paul and he facing persecution and being in jail and then having to give an account. I particularly like his response in, in uh, Acts 26. He says, Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come that Messiah would suffer and that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. You know what that is? In one word? It's the gospel. There it is. That's cool. Nice and easy. Questions? No questions? It was absolutely understood and flawless. Wow. I haven't done that in a while. Okay. We take a break. We'll come back. And we'll move on.